You're listening to Tech Tank, a bi-weekly podcast from the Brookings Institution, exploring the most consequential technology issues of our time. From racial bias and algorithms to the future of work, Tech Tank takes big ideas and makes them accessible. Let me be candid. Um, this is a very sober thing to say, um, and I can't say this with certainty, but I can say this quite learnedly. Uh, don't anticipate schools are going to open up in a week. Please don't anticipate in a few weeks. And I say that because one needs to be honest. A challenge and a crisis that we have never seen in our lifetimes, and it has only just begun. So I regret to have to announce that as of tomorrow, our public schools will be closed. No way. So we're very much going to put pressure on uh, governors and everybody else to open the schools, to get them open. And uh, it's very important. It's very important for our country. It's very important for the well-being of the student and the parents. So we're going to be putting a lot of pressure on open your schools in the fall. Early in March, the COVID-19 pandemic began burning a furious path across the U.S shuttering schools and sending 50 million students home. Some of the nation's largest public school districts, including New York City and Los Angeles, were the first to close their doors for the remainder of the academic year. Many parents say they are already overwhelmed by the alternative, remote learning. A recent survey found nearly 50% of parents are struggling to keep kids focused on schoolwork while at home. Many parents were forced to become educators for the first time in their lives. And school districts quickly tried to become fully equipped for distance learning, an experiment that laid bare the digital divide in America. Those who have home computers and broadband access to the internet, and those who do not. A modern inequality exacerbated by the virus. With June, students, parents, and teachers got a brief respite from the demands of distance learning. But the pandemic summer moved quickly. And with September, School districts across the country implemented scattershot reopening plans. That's where we are. We're not closing. We'll never close. You'll have certain areas that will uh, have difficulty and they'll do what they have to do. And President Trump wants to see schools open, despite the lack of a vaccine and the major changes that schools would have to undertake to keep students, educators, and support staff safe. As the effort to reopen schools happens across the country, one thing is for sure. All will be forced to navigate this new educational normal while still in the middle of a public health crisis. But what does reopening look like, and how can it happen safely? And how will it evolve as COVID-19 remains at large in America? Will school reopening become more of a political debate, like face masks? Does it happen in a classroom, with students sitting six feet apart as the virus bears down? Or remotely in a living room? with students staring at a laptop for hours on end as their parents scramble to support them while precariously trying to balance their jobs. Can hybrid models work to maintain levels of learning? With the school year well underway, we need answers, good answers, and fast. Hello, I am Dr. Nicole Turner-Lee, Senior Fellow in Governance Studies and Director of the Center for Technology Innovation at the Brookings Institution. This is no ordinary school year. Some schools right now are physically convening students and teachers, and others are leaning on all virtual for the next few months until public health assurances are confirmed, like a vaccine. And as we have our conversation today, I want to remind people the importance. These last few months have have been a barometer of schools' capacity to address national and local digital divides. And many schools were challenged, especially those schools that were serving public schools and getting kids online. You all recall, at the onset, more than 15 million school-aged children were without home broadband access or a device, and 9 million children, according to some research by the Common Sense Media Organization, lacked both internet 
as well as a device, so both. And the students most affected were those that lived in rural areas, federally subsidized or unstable housing, and were impacted by a range of other systemic inequalities, including poverty, language, and race. And before we begin this conversation, I want to add in just one other point that I think is worth mentioning, and I'm hopeful that my guest today will address it. If we don't get this right, a recent study by the McKinsey Group has suggested that the educational achievement gap will widen, and those that will be most affected will be African-American and Hispanic students. The statistic is that Black students have already seen a widening of the educational achievement gap by 15 to 20% by not being connected to learning, and Hispanic kids are not too far behind. And if we don't do this right, by January and get kids connected back into school, low-income students will be behind by more than a year when it comes to learning. So I'm excited about this conversation today as we actually bring you another Tech Tank episode. And I'm joined by three people who I think will give us some context to why being connected to learning in some way or form, whether in person or online, matters. One of the guests that we have today is my dear friend and probably the best commissioner in the entire world, and that is Federal Communications Commissioner Jessica Rosenworcel. You know her for her talks about the homework gap, and I know she's been exhausted just like myself trying to make sure we do this right to ensure connectivity is available to every student. We're also joined by my new friend, the Alabama State Superintendent, Dr. Eric Mackey. I met this gentleman in a conversation I had with one of his outstanding principals in Marion, Alabama, and I know he's got a lot to share since that conversation more than seven months ago. And my new friend, Prince George County Principal, Vita McCoy, who is out there right now making sure that her students at Avalon Elementary School are getting what they need to stay connected to learning and other social supports. Welcome, everybody. Glad to be here. Good to be Welcome. here. Glad to be here. Yeah, so happy to have you. So let's jump right into this. Um, you know, I, like all of you, just have this concern for the babies. I mean, my daughter is 13 years old. I am a parent, and I tell you, the other day, she just fell into my arms crying because she just wants to see her friends at school. And she's realizing, in all honesty, what it's like to be virtual eight hours a day when you're trying to actually get schoolwork done. I want to talk to uh, first Superintendent Mackey, and then I want to go to you, Principal McCoy, around how are you holding up since schools have reopened? And if you could talk a little bit, I think at the state level, uh, Superintendent, about what's happening in Alabama overall and then Principal McCoy, tell me what you're doing in Prince George's County, which is one of the nation's largest school districts as well. Let's start with you, uh, Dr. Mackey. I'm glad to do it. Thank you. And I, it is good to be on the show today and to talk about how the pandemic has has affected us and also what we see uh, coming out of it. And I know we're going to do that. So how are we holding up in Alabama? Well, I, I'm going to say we're holding up pretty well. Uh, actually, you know, from this position, you always try to consider everything that could go wrong, and um, it did not all go wrong. So, so really, uh, the reopening of school has has gone pretty smoothly for us. All of our students are technically in school. I'm making air quotes, uh, but actually, more than half of our students are virtually learning right now. So, we do have uh, 740,000 students in Alabama, and. Um, Again, about 300, 350,000 of them are in-person instruction, uh, and then the others are remote. Our largest school districts, so six of our seven largest districts, all open remote only. So that's obviously a lot of students. Uh, the smaller districts, most of them opened with an option for in-person or remote, and those numbers kind of shifted. So in some districts, it was only 10% decided to do remote learning. Uh, and and in other districts, it was as high as 30 or 40 percent of students that chose to do remote learning. Actually, we did surveys in the summer, and in some districts, up to 70 or 80 percent of parents said they were going to choose remote learning. But but what happened in those districts is they then said, well, we're only going to do remote learning because it's too difficult uh, to try to manage both remote and in-person when that many of your students are remote. Uh, unfortunately, uh, as you know, Nicole, you've been here. And so the places and the communities where more students chose 
or parents chose remote learning, um, largely in poor communities, yeah. um, largely in uh, majority African-American communities where people were really uh, more concerned about the virus and its impacts on the community. And so they are also the communities where, um, where we have lower connectivity rates, uh, where we have um, fewer options for students. So, so it's caused us a lot of concerns. Uh, we're, we're supporting those schools. We have rolled out several things this year. Uh, you know, one of the things I, I know you and I talked about early on was in uh, Marion, Alabama, Perry County, where we had mobile devices on school buses, and then people yeah. could go to the volunteer fire department. We also have put um, uh, mobile Wi-Fi in every public library in the state so that so people can go drive to the public library uh, parking lot and they can do work from there. So we've done a lot of those kind of things. But as I've said over and over, and, and we'll say again now, there is a difference yeah. in me driving to the public library and sitting in my car to get on the internet and me having internet at home. Um, and we can't, we can't feel like once we've done one of those, it's, it's a good bandaid that gets us through, but it is not a solution to, to, to use the term that, that you use and the commissioners use so many times to, to close the homework gap, which is what we have to talk about. Uh, we have also, I want to say one other thing, we've rolled out a voucher program that the governor provided money for us about a hundred million dollars to, so that people could connect uh, if they've got a vendor that provides either a cable company, a local phone company, a local power company, um, uh, a wireless provider like T-Mobile. But if they are willing to, um, to connect students, then the state will pay the connection fee and pay, the, um, pay a voucher for the, the utility service through December 30th. And of course, that's because this is coming out of CRF money and then the money goes away. We have had a lot of response to that. Uh, students early on were signing up at a rate of two per minute, and it, then it picked up from there. So we have signed up literally thousands of people onto that program, and it's, um, you know, from all accounts, pretty successful, but it is a four-month program. So we are all, even though we just rolled it out last month, we are already staring at the wall and saying, okay, now what are we going to do on January 1st? for these students. So okay. that's kind of lay of the land of what, how it's going in Alabama from the state perspective. And, and um, uh, but before I pass it to Vita, I just have to say, you know, the problem with my position from the state is there are also places where, where it's going really, really well. I mean, they're doing an awesome job because they're in a place where students are mostly connected at home. They have devices. Uh, the parents are able to support them. And so so we have places that are doing really well, and we have places that are really struggling, and pretty much everything um, in between. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, first of all, I'm very excited to hear that you rolled out those Wi-Fi school buses. Um, so thank you for doing that, because you're, you know, this was one of those times that we had to just put every post-it note up, right, to make it work. But I, I, I appreciate sort of the struggle, right, in terms of how do you get uh, those families that want this option, but yet they cannot get it because of the lack of broadband. I want to come back to some of the things that you also are doing in the state. And Principal McCoy, I mean, you're in Prince George's County, which, you know, is the flip side of what we're hearing in um, Alabama statewide. You're a local principal of our babies. Um, and I'd love to hear a little bit more about, you know, Prince George County in, in general, as well as what you've been doing at Avalon Elementary School in which you're leading this transition in this new era. Right. Oh, hello, everyone. And um, it was so good to to hear another perspective um, about from another part of the world about what, what we're doing. And it's really um, all the same. So Superintendent Mackey, thank you so much <clears throat> for sharing that. And thank you for having me um, as a part of this, this wonderful panel and discussion. So in Prince George's County, as you know, we have over 200,000 um, students, I believe, and um, maybe 50,000 employees. It's, uh, you have to, you can, you can fact check me, but it, it, we're large and we have a diverse um, population and wide range of um, socioeconomic um, statuses within our school district. And our CEO uh, is doing a great job in leading us into this, this, this unprecedented um, time of, 
of learning and, and education. So some of the things that we're doing, well, the school district has made a commitment that we at Avalon are supporting and enforcing 100%. So making sure that students have what we call consumables and materials. We've coordinated materials distribution dates where they can come to the school and pick up textbooks and those types of things so that they can learn in the home environment. And I believe that there is a corresponding uh, supply of textbooks on one of our online platforms. So they have it digitally and then they have it also consumably in their hands. And then one-to-one -one devices, uh, a promise to make sure that every student in Prince George's County had an electronic device provided by the school district on which they could learn. Uh, also internet services, uh, very much uh, similar to Superintendent Mackey and saying that if uh, we can provide internet service for families who do not have access access to it. Also hotspots have been provided. So we're arranging for them to come and pick up hotspots if they needed to support them. Parent support centers, because technology, 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 vastly we learn that operating apps on your phone is completely different. And you, you know, we felt, oh, they're so tech savvy. That's a different um, corner of the ring than sitting in front of a Chromebook or an iPad, a computer, and accessing portals and Zoom and toggling back and forth. And there are questions and then things do not work properly. And so we have parent support centers two days a week, morning and afternoon hours, where they can go and ask questions. They can have access to printers if they need it and assistance with uploading assignments. Also, we have free meals, breakfast and lunch five days a week distributed to all students. We have a grant that we're using those funds to provide food. And then we have training and development for everyone, for staff, students, uh, central office employees, um, principals. We are doing a lot of professional development. So there, the, the support is there to walk the vision out. At Avalon, in addition to relating all of that information, giving it to parents and students and staff in a timely, as timely manner as I can, organizing for collaborative work and still trying to be an inspirational, transformational leader of a school, I started the school year thinking about how I could keep my staff and my students motivated. And I, I, I began to meditate about it and pray about it. And I said, listen, we have to put some, we have to put the, we can't put the buggy before the horse in this. We have to factor in how people have been, um, how people are feeling and what they have been experiencing since life was turned upside down on March the 13th. We thought when we went that Friday that we would be back in two weeks. And they kind of lost, you know, they the, the teachers have lost. We we're in this to make a difference. So we want to see those students sitting in front of us and interact with the parents, interact with like-minded individuals in the school context. And so what I started with was more being transformational and inspirational from the standpoint before we talk about data and deliverables, we're going to talk about renewing our dedication as to why we do this. Start with our mission which is, you know, remains to provide um, high quality education, safe and nurturing learning environment, all of those things that we know we are here to do. But what's the vision for this context? So three things that I provided for them, and then I'll, I'll turn it back over um, to you, is that to make sure that we are doing well. So the first week of pre-service, you know, we spend a lot of time in technical conversations, what needs to be done and done by when and all of that, your less plans and emergency plans and 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 um, data, 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 the data from the previous year and all of that. I didn't talk about any of that because I wanted my staff to know that we needed to be a, a supportive community. And so we came from the vantage point of three things. Number one, we would allow our dreams to be bigger than our fears. We would lean into our discomfort and seek solutions. And then we would fail and fall forward and not allow any lesson to be lost, no matter what it was. If you take the risk in the best interest of students and follow policy and interpret it as a way that you think is going to make the most impact and the biggest difference in the lives of our students, we can support it and we can always tweak it and start over tomorrow. And so kind of, I'm always able to, now that we are experiencing this and Zoom is crashing and Google is going out and all of that, we're able to go right back Hi. to the 
Yeah, we're able to go right back to those fundamental focuses, right? Our dreams are bigger than our fears. So that's frightening, right? For you to log on and say, Google's down, not just in your house, but in the world. But how are you going to, how are you going to adapt to that? So in addition to everything that the school district is committed to doing to make sure that every student in Prince George's County has a quality instruction, the free and appropriate um, public education that they are entitled to at the school level, principals, staff, we have to be flexible. We have to do dodge and weave. And that's what we've been doing. And, and we're doing well. Like as the superintendent Mackey said, it, it's going well. Yes. I, I mean, I just absolutely love this mix of um, state and local, right? Because it's the state has to, has to work with the larger vision of the plan. But what you shared, uh, Principal McCoy, actually, it just it hits my heart. Because it's part of, you know, the caring and tending to the needs of this new unknown, right, society of learning. And how do we actually do that to ensure that these students and parents still feel supported? I mean, they are just as scared as we are. But, you know, at the end of the day, this is a new tool. And as you've said, you know, when something goes down, what do you tell a parent who may be working or on a Zoom podcast, you know, (laughs) while they're actually trying to teach their child? I want to go commissioner to you. We have been talking about this for before the pandemic. A long time. We have been talking about this during the pandemic. And now I think we're going to be talking about this after the pandemic. Speak to us a little bit. And I think it's wonderful to have this audience of state and local about this homework gap that you have been sharing for years that we need to address. And what you're also seeing in this progression of the day one conversation to now when it comes to getting students connected. Yeah, well, thank you, Nicole. I'm so glad that you're doing this with Brookings and also that you've gathered such uh, dynamos from really around the country here today. I I believe when the history of this time is written and there are gonna be a lot of books, that educators are gonna come out as real heroes in this moment. And um, it's gratifying to know people are working so hard for our nation's children. So as a commissioner at the FCC, I have a front row seat when it comes to our nation's digital divide. And this pandemic has exposed some really hard truths. And one of them is that our digital divide is very real and very big. So back in the before times, I uh, would talk a lot about the homework gap. And it's really this, you know, when I was growing up, all I needed for homework was paper, a pencil, my brother leaving me alone, and I was set. But those days are gone. Seven in 10 teachers assign homework that requires internet access, but all the data from my agency show that one in three households don't have broadband. And so where those numbers overlap is what I started calling the homework gap, because it's a very specific part of the digital divide. And I would add, it's a very cruel part of the digital divide because we're talking about the next generation not being able to do their schoolwork. You want every one of those kids to have a fair shot at success. And I believe it starts with homework. So we talked about this for a long time, trying to get policymakers to focus on this problem. And then this crisis emerged, right? And more than 50 million kids were sent home, told to go to school online last spring. Many of them are still trying But for millions of kids who don't have reliable internet access, the virtual classroom is locked. And I just think in the United States of America, we should be able to fix that. We should be able to do something about it. And, you know, um, as difficult as this problem is, I have this weird undercurrent of optimism right now because we've exposed just how important it is for every child to have a reliable internet connection in order to continue with school. And so I think this homework gap is something that as a nation at the federal level and at the state and local level, we're now seeing renewed attention and focus on. And I think with all that focus and energy, we're gonna find solutions, but we need them fast because the Alliance for Excellent Education found that nearly 17 million students during this pandemic don't have the internet access they need to go to school. And that falls disproportionately on low-income households, households in rural areas, on households that have minority children. And so what we could be doing over time if we don't address this is taking this homework gap, making it an education gap, and then a long-term opportunity gap. 
So I want to see my agency, the FCC, step up, use programs we have already on the books, like the E-rate program, to go and help every school uh, principal and teacher so that they can do things like support loaning out wireless hotspots and you know other creative solutions so that no child is left offline. You know, that makes me think, uh, Dr. Mackey, around things that you and I have spoken about. You know, kids that live in very, very poor rural areas that really are dealing with a bundle of other systemic inequalities and how now we're trying to address those same inequalities while we're trying to connect them to learning. Um, talk to me a little bit about, you know, and, and, and Principal McCoy, I want you to also jump in, but talk to me about this, you know, so we can humanize this for folks, because I think people hear it, but it would be great to sort of outline what kind of barriers are we really talking about when we're talking sure. about our young people. Sure. And of course, in Alabama, we've, we have, uh, you know, two really distinct uh, groups. So we're either, for the most part, really rural. We, we have some places that are pretty far away from a major town, or we, we have five, you know, what we would call major cities. They're not, uh, they're not New York. They're not Prince George's County, but, but we have five metro areas that are obviously different because you have a lot more services with, and, and not just education, but we're talking about obviously things like cable TV and, um, really good phone service that you might be able to get four or five or six mobile carriers. Um, so you have your choice of things, but you also have access to medical care, have access to uh, public libraries that are close, that are, that are really well stocked and lots of opportunities that uh, the more rural areas of the state don't have. And I grew up, so I'm state superintendent now, but I grew up in a very rural area of the state. I'm a first generation college student um, and so I understand what those barriers are. Uh, I, I will tell you a quick personal story. And I think, Nicole, I may have actually told you this story before, but for our other panelists, uh, if they'll bear with me, at the beginning of this pandemic, uh, back in, in uh, March, I guess, I got up in the middle of the night, like two o'clock in the morning, and saw a light on upstairs uh, in my son's room. And so I, and, and uh, I had not planned on staying up. So I walked upstairs to see what's going on. Well, he's doing chemistry homework at two o'clock in the morning and he's stuck on something. Now, it's important to know the background. I was a, a high school physics and chemistry teacher 30 years ago. So I'm like, I'm bleary eyed and I'm like, what are you doing? And he, well, we're doing homework and I'm stuck on a couple of questions, uh, you know, as teenagers can do work in the middle of the night. So I kind of wake myself up and we, we work through and get answers to his questions and move on. Now, here's where that story um, th is really relevant to your question. So one, not everybody has a dad, obviously, right. who was a high school chemistry teacher. Right, so I right. began thinking the next morning, you know, the next morning, later that morning when I got up for good, I'm thinking, you know, oh my God, how many people are home trying to do homework? It might be chemistry. It might be fifth grade English, you know, but their their parents are not truly able to help them do the work and they're not seeing a teacher the next day at school. Plus, my son was searching for answers. He was on Khan Academy. He had like six websites open reading, trying to get answers. How many of our students don't have access, especially back in March, you think they don't have a device with them. They don't have access to the internet. Yeah, true, they can they can go to a public library the next day. But again, there's a difference in accessing that from your own uh, bedroom at two o'clock in the morning and driving to the public library during the hours when the internet's turned on, which is like, you know, nine to four. So what you talk about a gap. I mean, there is a serious gap in opportunity. Um, and what we see in Alabama is even, even more so. So when we look at um, things like healthcare, you know, healthcare is my my big issue because we can overlay um, maps for um, things like childhood or um, uh, infant, not childhood, but infant mortality. We can overlay an infant mortality map in this state and where the prevalence of infant mortalities are, and a poverty map and a low achievement in school map, and they almost look the same. Like you could not pick out which one is measuring what. 
because the communities where uh, there is, um, you know, a lot of poverty and not much access to health care are all the, also the issues where we have really low achievement levels. And, and there are not a lot of opportunities. And it gets worse with every generation because there are obviously success stories every year. Like we have students who grow up in abject poverty, as I'm sure, uh, you know, Principal McCoy sees, students who, who have everything against them, and by gosh, they succeed. But they almost never go back to that that rural underserved community, and so even those people who grow up there, who really could be the leaders and and the strength of that community, they move off and don't come back. And so we see what for us is a, you know kind of a scary looking future where uh, those areas are getting more and more underserved, and they're also getting. <laughs> Uh, more and more rural because the the population's declining, which means that more services leave, more jobs leave, more opportunities leave, and and it's really hard to stop the bleeding uh, yeah. in those communities. Yeah, and actually, before I go to uh, Principal McCoy, Commissioner, I want you to jump in here, right? Because rural broadband is one of those areas that we both think, you know, if it was available, we could actually stop some of this hemorrhaging of yeah. communities where opportunity is not there. So I think that this crisis has made broadband go from nice to have to need to have. But what I want to see us do next, really as a nation, is decide our standard is 100%. We want 100% of our households to have access to water, 100% of our households to have access to electricity, and 100% of our households to have broadband. And I think we need to start talking about it with vocabulary like that, because I think that there are big issues of equity tied up in a world where all of our households and all of our communities don't have that access. So I, I think as a nation, we need to make that the standard. And then we got to figure out how to use what uh, resources we have to make sure we get there and achieve that standard. You know, and it makes so much sense. And I want to actually, uh, Superintendent Mackey, my daughter is doing pre-algebra. And I walked in and she was sitting there on the bed, you know, what look, I think she had the look like, I really don't even know what this says. <laughs> and in my case, being a PhD in sociology, I couldn't <laughs> help her. <laughs> so I told her to go on Khan Academy. I, 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 my mother's a teacher, but she wasn't a math teacher. So we didn't know what to do uh, actually with regards to that. So I really um, can rest that example resonates with me because this virtual learning is forcing many of us parents to become teachers. And I don't know about many who are listening, but uh, I forgot a lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I know my algebra and, skills and are getting better. I agree. I forgot <laughs> too. Yeah. And whatever happened to, you know, learning by rote and all that kind of stuff where you just wrote it until you I, remember it. But, you know. Like I can only imagine because you have primary care stu- uh, students, right? I mean, yes. And the concept for um, language right. acquisition has changed, as well as what uh, what making meaning. And I'm I'm being very um, you know specific and technical here, but you know what making meaning of words. It, it's just all changed. But what I would like to say in my mind actually went back to one of the events that we hosted um, with um, Reverend Jesse Jackson and the communications com- um, event that we had to try and get internet access for seniors and uh, people living at the level of poverty because they were being left out of the, the new economy. Something as simple as, you know, requesting a Uber or, you know, participating in the new wave um, or the new high oh, doctor's appointments for that population, hearing. especially telehealth is super powerful. Doctor's appointments. Absolutely. And now here we are at another vulnerable population, which are students, right? And so what I try to communicate to my staff, and again, I'm the, I'm the, I'm the position in between district initiatives and implementation, implementation at the school level. So what I try to remind my staff is as they are in the grind, trying to make all of this happen, is that broadband, 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 all internet access is not equal. So, you know, what we've heard from Principal McCoy is like, you know, the Internet is not equal. So I want to move now into before we start maybe mapping out a master plan. You know, I want to start with you, Commissioner, in terms of 
what is it then that we need to start doing? I mean, we know that there is federal support, and I would love for you to just share for just a moment, you know, why it has been very much um, a, a big issue to get federal support to schools, like uh, what Superintendent Mackey is talking about when it comes to connecting them generally. So why does federal support matter? Let's go there. Yeah. Listen, I think as a nation, we decide there's no child that should be left offline. We should fix the homework gap. And so we got to look around and say, what tools do we have on the books to make that happen? And, you know, back in 1996, Congress passed a law called the Telecommunications Act. 1996, I don't know, uh, you know, we probably call the Internet the information superhighway. It was a long time ago, but Congress saw that there was going to be this connection between education and the Internet, that the infinite opportunities to read and learn online we're going to be related to how we learned in the future. And so Congress in this law, the Telecommunications Act, created a program called E-Rate. E-Rate's the nation's largest education technology program. It is a quiet powerhouse. It helps support internet connections in schools in every state in this country. And, you know, it's actually a program on a sliding scale because the program sends more support to schools with higher percentages of kids on the free and reduced lunch program and in rural communities. So it's kind of like a map of places where we might find other problems like food insecurity or lack of internet access at home. But in any event, E-Rate has been this quiet powerhouse supporting connectivity in physical school buildings and classrooms now for more than two decades, which is exciting. But here we've got this crisis. So the question is, how can you update E-Rate, make it meet this moment? And to me, the answer is really clear. The classroom has moved from inside the school building to the kitchen table. It's now virtual. So we need to be able to figure out how to reconfigure this program under existing law so that it can support every school in this country doing things like loaning out wireless hotspots or setting kids up with routers if they need it at home. Just like our schools today will loan out a math textbook for the year so that student can know pre-algebra. We should be doing the same thing here. And I think if we did that with E-Rate right now, we'd make a meaningful dent in the homework gap and we'd be able to keep kids connected during this crisis and in the, you know, in the times we get to the other side, which matter just as much because we can't on a going forward basis um, look at education, you know, like it's going to go back. It is going to require this kind of connectivity, both at school and at home for the foreseeable future. And, and State Superintendent Mackey, what are you thinking about that? I mean, I know you're aware of E-Rate. If it could be adjusted to actually get more home broadband access or to transform those digital parking lots into digital parks, something that I recently wrote about, would this be helpful to you in terms of what you're trying to accomplish within the state of Alabama? Oh, it absolutely would be helpful. I, I cannot overemphasize how important it is that we find a way to get every student access to the internet. And, and I can't help but to um, make a connection with one of the things that the commissioner said, and that's that she referenced textbooks and how we use textbooks. You know, 60 years ago in, in Alabama, and I'm sure in other states too, uh, it was not a law that every student got a textbook. If, if you could not afford your own textbook, then you might just not get one. And I actually know a little bit of that story because I have a good friend whose, whose grandfather was in the state legislature and sponsored the bill in the 1960s to say, we are going to buy the state of Alabama, we're going to buy every child a textbook. And so access to a textbook is not going to be based on your parents' income anymore. It's going to be based on you, you know, every not it's based on anything. It's going to be based on the fact that you're a child in this state and everybody's going to have equal access to that knowledge. Now, a textbook was a big deal in the 1960s because that is where you went to get knowledge. Uh, the, the Internet is the textbook of today. And, and, and again, it should not be based on whether your parents can afford Internet or whether your um, private business has run Internet to your house or not. Like, we, we absolutely have to answer this question and get access to every child because that's where you go get information now. And if students don't have equal access to that information, then there's no way we can say they have 
equal opportunities in school. I love that story about the textbook, just because it's such a way to look at a historical analog and, you know, bring it forward and carry it to the present. Because I think there are others here, which is like, we used to say that we couldn't get electricity to rural parts of this country because it wasn't cost effective. So farms wouldn't be able to turn on the lights or have refrigeration. But then we came together as a nation and passed the Rural Electrification Act and decided, no, we were going to get everywhere electricity. And it just seems to me like there are a lot of historical analogs here. We just got to sort of open our eyes to them and recognize these were the choices we made in the past that moved us forward. We can make them again. And and, and before McCoy, jump in on this, because I want to hear what you have to say, particularly those teachers, right, that you're changing their minds around this. Yeah, great. They, um, They are very willing still to help. It's the it's the learning curve again. They need to know how. They need to know how they can help. It's not so much there's no there are no PTO meetings to attend. There are no, you know, muffins for moms and donuts for dads at this time. So our community partners need information. They need to be brought into the conversation. And so we're doing things like parent and community uh, partners, universities. I reached out to my community partners leading up to my back to school night and said, you know, would you like to come on board? Would you like to make a a presentation? Because they've been in partnership with the school now my entire tenure there and some even before then. We have people who were using the the school to provide that kind of support, whether it's after school programs or Saturday programs. They can't do that now. So we everyone has to adjust, assess and adapt. We have to be able to bring them into the conversation and don't leave them on the sidelines until we get back, quote unquote. And Superintendent Mackey, I'm making my own air quotes now, right? We have to bring them in now because it's going to take um, revisiting, um, revisioning and revamping of how they partner with schools. Though I have discovered that every time I have reached out and even some of them have reached out and say, we don't know what to do, how can we help? The, the will is still there. Now we have to bridge the gap between the skill and provide them with the information so that they can then make their adjustments on the organization side as to how they will fund support to the local schools and to the school district overall. You know, I love this. I want to stay on this for just a moment. I was looking at an article, I was reading an article the other day, and I think I was looking at something on television where teachers are sitting in some of those digital parking lots, superintendent, right? Accessing the internet. And I want to talk to you, Commissioner. I mean, we have had this back and forth as to who has the authority to extend E-rate to the home of students. We've had a conversation around the unused money that was available in E-rate to be able to do that immediately. We've also had the conversation around some of these attempts through the CARES Act to, and the HEROES Act to get money to schools. But should we also be looking at E-rate for teachers? Like I'm, I'm thinking of my friends like this Service Corps right, initiative that includes E-rate funding so that our teachers are also suitably connected. What do you think, Commissioner? Yeah, no, absolutely. This is an issue. I, I saw a number that suggested as many as 400,000 teachers have some issues with their internet connectivity. And if they've got some issues their class and their students have issues. Now, the E-rate program itself, I don't think easily contemplated this, but I think we've got to realize this is part of the part of the fix. And I think that there are pieces of legislation that create some pathways forward here, but we're probably also going to need a better accounting of the degree to which this is a problem and where it's a problem than we have at present. Yeah, that, I think I I see a study coming on the Brookings. <laughs> well, you just might be in the right place. Yeah, I think so. I think my exhaustion has been added to, right? Because we do have to deal with this as well. All right. Well, um, I have other ideas if you need some other research. Things yes, I mean, we you know, keep you busy. So far, <laughs> so far, no child left offline, teacher access. I mean, let's take it now to the state level. And then, you know, pretty soon we're going to wrap up, I think, with this blueprint for reimagining education. Superintendent Mackey, on the state level, we've heard about the federal resources. What needs to happen at the state level? I mean, are you getting enough support uh, at the state level to do what you have to do? You know, it, we've certainly been um, able to utilize a lot of the federal money. I, I've got to brag on our governor and and uh, leadership here because that between the money that came through the Department of Education and then the, the governor in our state, Governor Ivey, put all of her gear money in K-12, most of it for access, 
uh, and then additional money for the vouchers. So we've spent about a quarter, um, a quarter of all our coronavirus relief money on K-12 um, devices, access, of course, nurses, PPE, uh, after school tutoring. I mean, we're really trying to do what we can. And, and there's been a lot of support for that. But again, I have to go back to, you know, $100 million for these vouchers to get internet to a lot of students who need it through December. And now we are already worrying about what January 1 looks like. So, so even though, I, again, I have to brag about some of the things we've done, the, we have to have long-term solutions, which is, I think, what um, the commissioner is talking about. I mean, we, we've got to figure out how we, we, we're not patching things along. You know, I'm always looking for silver lining. Sometimes people um, tell me I actually got an email from a parent this week and said I'm I'm actually too optimistic when I get interviewed on TV. So I can be an optimistic guy. I, I think we cannot lose the opportunity here, as was just said, just like with Rural Electrification Act. Whatever it's going to be, we, we have hopefully this wakes everybody up and says, "Oh my gosh, we got this. We have to fix this. We have to get internet to everyone." For students, what I'm worried about is what, uh, you know, our, the commissioner's worried about. That's what our principal's worried about. But look, it's about health care, too. And it's about general access to other things. Everything is moving to the Internet. So we've got to get access out there. And I hope what we learn from this is that, um, you know, we don't, we don't just walk away from it and, and miss the opportunity to do something big for this country for every every child, every household in the country by the end of this. And, and I think we will. So, yes, we've got good resources right now. It's been super. But those resources will go away because they're time limited. And, again, we just cannot miss the long-term opportunity uh, of what can be done for the future. No, I mean, having an expiration date on these types of efforts, which have been dramatic, right, in the life of students and parents and teachers and administrators, I think it's something that we need to reevaluate. It's it's almost like um, telehealth that uh, we commonly deal with, that right now people are seeing their doctors remotely, but if there's an expiration date on that, what does that mean? What does it mean in terms of mitigating the risk of the pandemic? What does it mean in terms of creating a new pathway towards healthcare. You know, before we talk about this thing that I've been often sharing with people, this reimagination of our educational system and schooling, uh, Principal McQuaid, I would be remiss to not ask you, though, about the role of local communities. And so we've talked about federal support. We've talked about state. Communities have to play a part in this as well, don't you think? Because schools are part of the general community, the churches, the nonprofit organizations, um, the community centers. What role do you see those organizations playing and what kind of support do you think they also need to be part of the solution and not the problem? Can I, before we do that, um, can I just add one piece is that the, our school district, Prince George's County has an office of community partnerships. And so those opportunities are um, being considered that office as well. And we have had support from the beginning of the school year with materials and resources. So instead of your typical school supplies, we have funds to sponsor kits, supply kits for everybody in the, you know, all pre-K students or all students in a certain grade, art supplies and things like that. So I think as we continue to build and learn as we go and build practice based on the data, empirical data from what we are actually experiencing in the distance learning context, that offices like the community partnership um, Office of Community Partnership can continue to uh, grow and present those um, opportunities to our partners. Yeah, and it seems to me for the county, there's some opportunities there, right? Because, you know, I just put in a piece that we have these uh, businesses that are basically becoming quickly vacant in some of our communities, particularly African-American and Hispanic communities. We're not looking at those spaces to be able to wire them, to bring in smaller classrooms, potentially. Uh, we've got, you know, issues related to how do we get food? to students. You know, there's opportunities to use some of that public space, a church to be a partner in this. We've got issues related to, you know, health uh, connections. And the thing that is driving me absolutely wild right now in terms of schooling as, you know, being the child of a 30-year educator is how do we deal with the social support needs, the well-being checks? I mean, I don't know if I'm by myself on this. It seems that 
We need an all hands on deck strategy. And a big portion of that can be enabled through broadband. Am I right about that, Commissioner? I mean, can we see broadband play a role in places that we've never even imagined it? Yeah, I just think this is sort of the infrastructure that connects us all. And listen, there's a lot on the internet and online that we can both know, love, and hate, but there's so much potential to do good. And in the end, the future is going to belong to those who are connected. So we got to figure out how we don't expand disparities with this infrastructure, but we actually decrease them. I want to thank FCC Commissioner Jessica Rosenworcel, Alabama State Superintendent Eric Mackey, principal of the... Uh, Great school in Prince George's County, Avalon Elementary School, Principal Vita McCoy. And I want to thank you for taking the time today to have this conversation. I wanted to humanize what's been happening to our students as they actually go through this um, journey. And I want to also say, in addition to having no child left offline, so Commissioner, I'm taking that. I'm just telling you I'm going to quote you. <laughs> but I'm, I'm making that. bumper stickers right now, yeah. You know we are. I'm going to make a T-shirt. But I also think, as we've also spoke about, that no teacher should be left offline as well. And so I think going back to what Superintendent Mackey said, we've got to do a good job of making sure when this expiration date sets in around the resources that have been maintaining the connectivity necessary to close not just the digital divides, but the economic divides, that we actually reset it because this is what school is going to look like. So thank you. I really appreciate you all chiming in. I, I, if you could see me over here, I'm partly in tears and partly without words because this has been so full and so refreshing and equally refreshing that I don't have to be a math teacher to help my daughter in school. I could just find other resources. <laughs> so thank you for that reminder that there are things that she could actually do online. Thank you all also for listening to the, this episode of Tech Tank, where uh, we appreciate your subscribership and we hope that you tune in uh, again and again and share this episode, but for future episodes to come. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Tech Tank, a series of roundtable discussions and interviews with technology experts and policymakers. For more conversations like this, subscribe to the podcast and sign up to receive the Tech Tank newsletter for more research and analysis from the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings.